Well, just coming back from our men's camp out, which uh, I would highly encourage you all to uh, attend next year. Uh, they, they keep getting better and better, I, at least I think, as the year's gone on. We've had two. So that just means that this year's was better than last year's. And there were a lot of things that we learned after our second camp out that maybe we didn't know after the first camp out. The first one is uh, camping at the end of April in Big Bear is cold, but there's no mosquitoes. So that's a win, right? That is a win. If you were with us in Palomar, that was probably the, the worst thing about Palomar were the mosquitoes. But uh, Big Bear was cold. I mean, we were in 40 degree temperatures overnight there. Uh, I was sleeping in three sweatshirts, two pairs of pants, a sleeping bag, and a blanket, and I was still cold. But you know what? It was, uh, it was a, a great time. Here's some other things that we learned, or at least that I learned. I learned to bring a cot. Last year, I didn't bring a cot, and I, I kind of thought, man, well, that's a little foo-foo to bring a cot. This year, I brought a cot, and I was thankful that I had a cot. I was cold, but I was not on the ground, so that was a win. Something else that I learned is, is bring a decent flashlight. Trusting my iPhone flashlight last year did not go well for me. So this year I bought one of those like tactical flashlights on, uh, on Amazon that makes you feel like Chuck Norris. It even has one of those red lights, which I, I don't know what that's supposed to do, but it had one. I was ready for it in case I needed it. And so I had a, a flashlight with me that worked, and that was good. The other thing I learned, a, a lesson last year that I, I corrected this year was to set up my tent on flat ground so that while I'm sleeping, I'm not gradually rolling off my sleeping bag pad. You know, I'm sure there's more lessons that will come to mind over the, the next months of things that we learned over our first and second camp out. But as we think about experiences in life, our experiences often teach us things, don't they? We go through trials, we go through successes, we go through times of, of, of triumph and failure, and we learn from them. And just like sometimes we can learn from our own experiences, we can also learn from the experiences of others. In fact, that's so much of what discipleship is about. It's doing life together. It's, it's living life together as believers in Jesus Christ, going through the ups and the downs together, learning from one another, learning from successes, learning from failures, learning from experience. Certainly, we've learned a lot from the experiences of King David over the, the course of this year, both good and bad. Tonight's no different. We're going to learn more from King David as this book concludes. We're going to be in chapter 24 tonight, and we're going to see from David another example, this time initially of what not to do, but really what we're going to focus in on is, is how we should follow David's example in learning from our sin, in responding to our sin that he demonstrates for us in 2 Samuel 24. If you're not already there, go ahead and open up there. As our text begins, it says in verse 21, again, the anger of the Lord, or verse 1, sorry, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he incited David against them, saying, go and number Israel and Judah. There are some parallels between chapter 21 and chapter 24. In chapter 21, if you think back to our, our last time together, we saw that uh, Saul had at one point in time gone after and put some of the, the Gibeonites to death. And you remember that whole situation, why that was bad, because Israel had sworn an oath to the Gibeonites back in Joshua chapter 9 that they would protect them. And God's judgment was brought against Israel, and there were three years of famine. And David sought the Lord and found out that, that God's judgment was upon his people for what Saul had done. And David needed to make things right between the Israel and the Lord for Saul's infraction. 
Well, in our text tonight, there's another situation that's similar to what was going on between uh, Saul and the Lord or between Israel and the Lord back in chapter 21, but this time it's between David and the Lord. It says, again, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. We don't know why. It doesn't tell us in the text, but Israel has done something. And we've been with Israel for quite a long time at this point in time. And in fact, even if you think back to the wilderness and back to the wandering and back to the, after that, the time of judges, this is not out of character for Israel to do something to make God angry, is it? This is pretty much lockstep with who Israel was a lot of the time. So Israel has done something to draw the anger of the Lord. And in an act of judgment, God, it says, incited David against them. Against who? Israel. Saying, go number Israel and Judah. It says, Yahweh, God, the Lord, incited David. Well, we have a problem here, don't we? At least on the surface we do. Because if you go to the parallel account of this, it says in 1 Chronicles chapter 21, verse 1, that someone else incited David to take this count, to take this census. That not God, but Satan incited David to take this census, to count the people. And so on the surface, it would seem that we've got an error here. This is one of those things that those gotcha atheists would want to point the finger and say, see, there's contradictions in the Bible. How can God be responsible and Satan be responsible at the same time? Well, we need to back up and take the full context of God's word together to understand what's going on, don't we? God is completely 100% sovereign, is he not? Yes, he is. Consider Job chapter 1 and 2. Satan shows up in the throne room of God, right? And God looks at him and he says, where have you come from? And he says, well, I've been roaming to and from the earth looking for someone, someone to trip up, someone to slow down, someone to attack. And what does God do? God says, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him in the whole earth. He is a man who is righteous. And Satan then responds to God, right? And says, well, of course he's righteous. What does he have to fear? You've given him everything. Look at his life. It's easy. And then what does Satan do? Satan asks permission of God to go after Job. He says, let me touch him. Let me go after him. Let me go after his family. Let me go after his possessions, his wealth, his reputation, his status. And then let's see what he does. And God then allows Satan to inflict Job. And so who inflicted Job? God or Satan? Both. Psalm 97.9 says this, God, Yahweh, the Lord is exalted above all gods. All gods being lowercase g, meaning the whole entire demonic realm. That Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, is exalted above them. Or what about in the New Testament with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 in the New Testament where Paul says that the Lord gave him a thorn in his flesh. And then he says that, that that thorn in the flesh was a messenger from Satan. So who gave Paul the thorn in the flesh? Was it God or Satan? It was both. And so that's what we see here in 2 Samuel chapter 24 and in 1 Chronicles chapter 21. We don't see a contradiction. We don't have a aha gotcha moment that we can say, well, let's just throw out the word of God because there's the mistake and, and we can't put our trust in it anymore. No, what we have here is we have two different points of view at what's going on. God, in his sovereign decree, his sovereign will, allowed Satan to go and incite David to number the people as an extension of God's judgment against Israel. Because again, God's anger was kindled against Israel. Why? We don't know, but it was. So what does he do? He allows Satan 
to incite King David to number the people of Israel in order that he might bring judgment against Israel. Well, numbering the people, the census, we're getting ready for a census again here in a couple years, right? I don't like those things, right? So it makes sense here that this is a negative thing. But it wasn't a negative thing. In reality, there were other times that God commanded his people to, to, to be numbered. He commanded his leaders to number the people. And so what was the, the problem here with David taking a census? Why would this be something that, that Satan would have to incite David to do? And we can only conclude, though the text is not very specific here, that it had to do with David's motivations behind taking this census. David numbered his people. He numbered his army. And when you think about numbering an army, there's a, a few reasons why you might want to number an army. I think that the greatest reason why you might want to number an army would be able to be boastful, right? I mean, it's the same reason why sometimes when you go to a pastor's conference, we get together with other pastors and they say, well, how many people go to your church? Well, this is how many people go to my church. The numbers game can lead to pride, can lead to boasting, can lead to a sense of, of self-aggrandizement, a, a sense of self-exaltation. And so David here, in a prideful move, it appears, wants to number the people. But there's something else in doing that that David is, is doing to, to sin against God beyond just the pride. And that is that David is shifting his confidence away from the Lord and placing it in men. He's shifting his, his security, his sense of, uh, of, of confidence in, in the outcome of battles away from God. And he's putting his confidence in his army, in himself. Well, it says there, as we continue on, it says, So the king said to Joab, the commander of the army who was with him, Go throughout all the tribes of Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, and number the people, that I may know the number of the people. But look at verse 3. But Joab said to the king, May the Lord your God add to the people a hundred times as many as they are, while the eyes of my lord the king still see it. But why does my lord the king delight in this thing? So David's request was out of sorts enough that Joab realized that there was something wrong with this request. And he objects to David. He says, David, may, may the people be multiplied a hundred times over what they are right now. But why does it matter how many people that we have right now? This was not a time of, of all-out war at, at this particular moment in Israel's history. In the wars that were being fought, Israel was uh, achieving victory over and so this wasn't a circumstance where they needed to know. And so Joab is, is protesting here. But David persists and Joab obeys the king's request. Verse 4, but the king's word prevailed against Joab and the commanders of the army. And so Joab and the commanders of the army went out from the presence of the king to number the people of Israel. And this was not a census to find out how many votes each tribe would have in the upcoming elections. This was a census to find out how many fighting men were there. This was to number the army, to enlist in the army, to make sure that there was a standing army for Israel. And so this process that was undertaken was quite a lengthy process. In fact, here's the, the route of the, uh, the census here. Crossing over Israel, uh, over the Jordan River, coming down, coming up, around, going all the way north, coming back down, and then looping back up here. So this was not as simple as, hey, let's send a, a ping to some cell phones and get them to hit a button whether or not they're interested in the army this year. Or even send a mailer out there. In fact, the text is clear. It says it took nine months and 20 days. Nine months and 20 days. 258 days to complete this laborious task of going out to number the people to take this census. 
Well, the numbers were counted. And it turns out that in the north, it says in the text, there were 800,000 fighting men. And in the south, in the tribes of Judah, there were 500,000 fighting men. It's over a million, right? And we think about those numbers and we say, wow, that's, that's a lot. And there's people all over the place that want to challenge that and argue against that. But that's not the point of the text. Chances are these numbers are rounded. I don't think there were exactly 800,000 and exactly 500,000. But there were a lot of, of men ready to fight, ready to do battle in the army of God. But what I want us to notice is not the rounded numbers, but the exact response from David. Because David, after this, in verse 10, it says, David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. So David goes into a state of conviction and guilt, and confession. David's heart struck him after he had numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done. But now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. We see a different David in the wake of this sin than we saw of David in 2 Samuel chapter 11, don't we? David is, is not running. David is not hiding. David is not covering up. David is not conspiring. David is not sweeping things under the rug. David feels the pang of guilt and conviction over his sin. And David is now well acquainted with the grace of God. So David goes to God and he confesses his sin because he's confident in what God's response would be. And that response is what? It's, it's forgiveness, isn't it? Our first point tonight is this. We need to take comfort in the extent of God's grace. We need to take comfort in the extent of God's grace. Maybe you're thinking that we're falling prey to the mindset of Romans chapter 6 verse 1 that Paul argues against. Should we continue to sin that the grace of God may abound all the more? What does Paul say? Stronger than that, men. He says, no, right? Meganoita, it's, it's the strongest Greek emphatic no in, in the language. And so, of course not. That's not what we're suggesting. We're not suggesting that we take comfort in the extent of God's grace such that it leads us to say, well, then I can just sin all I want because what does it matter? God is gracious. And I'll always be able to go to him and ask for forgiveness and he's going to forgive me and then I can move on with my life. Notice the descriptive words of David. This is why I'm confident that David's not just taking grace for granted here. It says that his heart struck him. Struck. In the original, in the Hebrew, it's a, it's a word of violence. It's a word of an, a, aggression. It's a word communi communicating an intense conviction. David's heart put him down to the ground, so to speak. I'm sure you've experienced the same thing at some point in time in your life. That you sin and you're wrecked over your sin. You're, you're destroyed in the spot where you stand. David's heart struck him. And he says, I have sinned greatly. And he confesses it as iniquity. It's a word meaning guilt. Remember 2 Samuel chapter 11? David's looking to, to shift blame. David's looking to cover up. David's looking to just make sure that Nobody knows about that. He's not worried about feeling guilty. His heart hadn't struck him at that moment. He hadn't felt the, the guilt and the pain and the conviction. But David has learned from his experience of what happened after that. 
David feels a weight of his sin that he didn't feel in 2 Samuel chapter 11 because he's gone through the, the, the discipline of the Lord that he went through in 11 and 12 and the chapters that followed. And so he says his sin is iniquity, it's guilt, and he says that he has acted very foolishly. That he's acted very foolishly. This that we see in David here, it's, it's conviction. It's genuine sorrow. It's not a, a trite coming to God going, well, you know what, yeah, I sinned, but hey, you know what, the the cross, and so forgive me, and uh, we're good, we're good. All right, let's move on from this. David's not looking to get rid of his guilt as quickly as he possibly can. David is looking to bring his guilt in confession to the Lord to deal with it the way that he should biblically and rightly deal with it. So I want to ask you tonight, is that what you do when you feel your heart strike you after sin? What is your first response when you feel the guilt of sin in the wake of sin, whether it's an angry outburst on the road, an angry outburst at home, a lustful session between you and your computer, whatever it may be, in the wake of that sin, what is your first response when you are are done with it and you say, that was wrong? What are you looking to do? Are you looking to assuage your guilt as quickly as possible? Are you looking to to run to thoughts of Romans 8, 1, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, and amen, yes, that is true, but that doesn't mean that we need to deal with our, our, our guilt by just pushing it down and, and shoving it away with thoughts of, well, we're, we're just simply forgiven at the cross, so my sin doesn't matter. Or maybe you just want to cover it up like David did back in 2 Samuel chapter 11. That you haven't learned the lesson that David learned in, in chapter 11, that you're looking to just think nobody knows about it and sweep it under the rug and it's no big deal, no, no harm, no foul, and move on with life. Or maybe, and I think this one's more common than than maybe the other two, but maybe what your response is, is I can't confess my sin to the Lord right now because I'm, I'm dirty. I'm, I'm tainted. I need to clean myself up before I can go back before the Lord. Instead, guys, we need to flee to the Lord when we've sinned. We know salvation by grace alone through faith alone, Yes. We understand that. But then how come when we sin, we feel like we need to merit God's forgiveness still? That we need a period of time to elapse between our sin and when we feel like we can pick up our Bibles again, or when we can pray again, or when we can listen to worship music again, or when we can come back to men's Bible study, or when we can come back to church. Why is it that we feel like we need to have a track record to bring before the Lord to say, now will you forgive me? Because look at how the last few days have been. That's a, that's a lie and it's a perversion of God's grace that turns it into something that we earn rather than something that we are given freely by him. And so when we sin, we need to trust in God's grace and be quick to confess and repent. It's a lie for us to think that we need to clean ourselves up because it's as though we think that, that God didn't see us when we were in the midst of our sin. He did. He's the omniscient God, the omnipresent God. There's nowhere, nowhere that we can flee from him. And so when we've sinned, we need to understand that and we need to go back before him. Even when you feel dirty, unworthy, and hypocritical, 
I would say, especially when you feel dirty, unworthy, and hypocritical, you need to go to God to find forgiveness. There's nowhere else that you can go to adequately deal with your sin, to adequately deal with your guilt, to adequately deal with your shame. God is there ready to forgive you. His grace is big enough. His forgiveness is wide enough. You can't out the forgiveness of God as a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. And so go to him. He is the only way to find that absolution that you long for through confessing your sin, bringing it to the light, asking for forgiveness and turning from the sin through repentance. Then, then we flee to Romans 8.1. There's therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. So I want to encourage you, plead with you to learn from David's sin with Bathsheba as well and learn from his example that he has here to take comfort in the extent of God's grace, to have that confidence that when you sin and you go to him and you confess your sin the way that David did, he felt the guilt, he felt the pang of conviction and he went to the Lord and said, I have sinned and committed iniquity and acted foolishly. When we do that, man, we will be forgiven by God's grace. However, as David was about to understand that forgiveness does not excuse our sins. It does not mean that consequence will not necessarily follow for our sinful behavior. Pick up again for me in verse 13 or verse 11. Let's back up. And David arose in the morning and the word of the Lord came to the prophet Gad, David's seer saying, go and say to David, thus says the Lord, three things I offer you. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. So God came to David and told him the, and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Or shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. And so you have this proposition that's given to David from the Lord. And, and remember that this punishment, this judgment that God is doling out is yes, in response to David's sin, his personal sin for numbering the people of Israel, but it's also an extent in it. It's an act of God's judgment from 24 verse one, where he says that God was angry with Israel. So he incited David against Israel. And so that's part of what's going on with this judgment. But David's giving three choices here and they decrease in time, but the, in the, the sincerity, the, the, uh, seriousness of the judgment increases. And so the first thing we see is three years of famine. Three years of famine. And that we saw back in chapter 21 as well. There would have been death. There would have been uh, trials. There would have been difficulty with three years of famine. And then we go down three months of fleeing from his foes. That was something David was all too well acquainted with, wasn't it? David knew what it was to be on the run. And I'm sure he was done with that, done being on the run. Three months, a shorter time period, but then again, it's, it's a greater risk to David. It's a greater risk to his men. And then finally, the, the three days, and it's three days of pestilence, three days of plague. And so David's response is informed here in verse 14 by his knowledge of the character of God. Look at verse 14. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great but let me not fall into the hand of man. Again, David's knowledge of God informs his answer. Notice he doesn't choose one of the three. He chooses really the potential of two out of the three, yes? He says, look, I don't wanna go on the run from mankind. He says, God, I'm gonna cast my lot with you because I know that you are a God who is merciful, a God who is compassionate. Even in your judgment, 
Habakkuk chapter 3 verse 2, the prophet there, after God has revealed everything that he's going to do against Israel, the, the, the prayer of the prophet in Habakkuk 3 2 is this, in wrath remember mercy. In wrath, remember mercy. And that's the God that we have, the God that we serve, the God that you know, is that even as the Lord disciplines you, even as the Lord brings judgment maybe in your life as a result of sin that you've committed, he's still a God who is merciful. He is still a God who is compassionate to you. And so David says, I'm gonna put myself and my people in the hands of the Lord. Even still, the judgment of God that we see unfold here reminds us of his holiness. And it reminds us of the necessary atonement that our sin demands. Our second point tonight is this. Tremble at the extent of God's justice. Tremble at the extent of God's justice. God responds with the pestilence, the three days of pestilence, of plague, of disease, Something that was going to be out of the hands of the Israelites. They weren't going to be able to cure this. This was going to be something that was going to be absolutely devastating to the people and devastating it was. Look at verse 15. So the Lord sent a pestilence, a plague on Israel from the morning until the appointed time. And there died of the people from Dan to Beersheba, from the north to the south, 70,000 men. 70,000 men in three days. Imagine that. And not just the, the men that died, but the families that were impacted by that. 70,000 men dead in three days. We should read that with a sense of, of fear. We should read that with a sense of uncomfortableness. That should make us cringe and squirm in our seats to think that as a result of David numbering the people... As a result of David's pride, God strikes down 70,000 people. Had David's sin been forgiven? Yes. But had it been excused? No. God's justice was going to be satisfied. It, it had to be satisfied. Because God is a God of justice. He couldn't say, well, that's okay, Dave. No big deal. You're forgiven. No punishment for the sin. Not to mention the sins that God was punishing all of Israel for. He had to respond. Think of, of David at this point in time. Understanding his guilt. Understanding that he had sinned against God. Understanding that this was a, a response from the Lord to what he had done. 70,000 men die. Their families grieve, mourn. What do you think David was thinking at that place, at that point in time? What was David feeling? What was going through his mind? Guilt? Sorrow? Regret? Fear? Maybe a, a resolve to say, I'm going to set myself to never do that again. If this is the judgment that my sin incurs, then I never want to sin against God ever again. I mean, I want us to realize that our sin against God is just as grave as David's sin against God. Just as offensive as David's sin was. Remember that this is an act of pride 
Maybe we let ourselves off the hook back in 2 Samuel chapter 11, although Matthew chapter 5 would tell us that we probably shouldn't. But maybe we let ourselves off the hook back in 2 Samuel chapter 11 because we haven't had an affair. And so we're saying, well, that's David, and David sinned worse than me, so I don't need to worry about my son turning into Absalom. Okay, but now I want to bring you face to face with this is an act of pride on David's part. How many of us have battled pride in our lives? Exactly. And so for us to think, well, God doesn't view my sin the same way that he views this sin. Of course he does. This wasn't murder or rape or some other horrible atrocity. This was David's boastfulness, his trusting in his self rather than in the Lord. We've all been there. All sin is an offense against a holy God and demands the full weight of his judgment so that justice is done. Your pride, my pride, demands the same justice from God, the same just response from God that David's sin demanded. Todd Friel, the host of Wretched Radio, tells a gives an illustration to help understand this because he oftentimes when he's witnessing to somebody on a college campus will get into this argument that, well, it's not fair that God would send somebody to hell for a white lie. And so Friel's response, and, and I love the way he does this, is he says this, he goes, okay, well, think about this. He said, if I tell a lie to my kids, can my, do my kids have any authority or power to, to punish me for that? No, they don't, right? You may be a, a lousy dad, but your kids really aren't going to be able to do anything to you if you lie to them. Now, let's think about lying to our spouse. Lie to your wife. Now, the the scales are ratcheted up a little bit. You may be on the couch that night, right? You're starting to feel the consequence, but it's the same sin. It's lying. Now, let's ratchet it up. How about lying to your boss? You lie to your boss, you're going to be on monster.com looking for a new uh, job, right? Now, all of a sudden, the consequence has gone up even more. It's the same sin. It's lying. Your kids can't do anything. Your wife can make you sleep on the couch. Maybe your boss can fire you. How about if you lie to the government? Where are you going? Jail. Do you see how it's the, the level of authority all of a sudden changes the response to the sin? And so when we think to ourselves, well, my sin's not as big of a deal as X, Y, or Z. You're wrong because it is. Because of who you've sinned against. Because you've sinned against a perfectly holy and just God. An all-powerful God who demands 100% entire allegiance to him. And so when we sin against him and rebel against him, it's going to bring against us the full force of his wrath and his justice to punish our sins. And so when we sin, we should feel that discomfort. We should feel the extent of God's justice. We should feel that our sins deserve what David's sins incurred. David saw the fallout of his sin with Bathsheba and it drove him this time to faster confession and repentance. But again, now he sees the intensity of God's justice through the execution of 70,000 of his men. And I can't help but imagine that it stuck with him from that time forward. Men, the cross should have the same effect on us. Because that's where God's justice was displayed for us. He didn't go after 70,000 of our closest friends and relatives. That's good, because I don't have 70,000. He went after his son on the cross. 
And so as I think about my sin, my sin killed my Savior. My sin demanded his betrayal. My sin demanded his arrest. My sin demanded his mocking. My sin demanded his beating, his flogging. My sin demanded the crown of thorns on his head. My sin demanded the cross beam being carried to Golgotha. My sin demanded the nails being driven through his wrist and driven through his feet. My sin demanded the, the labor of trying to lift himself up on a splintered cross, to, on a, a bleeding back to get, get a breath to be able to take. My sin suffocated my Savior. My sin. It should have been me there. As I'm sure David was looking at 70,000 men die and say, it should have been me. In fact, he says that, doesn't he? It says in verse 17, Then David spoke to the Lord when he saw the angel who was striking the people and said, Behold, I have sinned. I have done wickedly. But these sheep, what have they done? Please let your hand be against me and my father's house. Next time you're tempted with sin, think of the extent of God's justice. The cost of what your sin cost Christ. The pain that he experienced for you. The suffering that he experienced for you. I need that myself. I need it to rest more on my mind than it does someone else being punished to satisfy the justice of God against the sinner. Sounds familiar. It's interesting because the the loss of life to satisfy the wrath of God, it culminates in the end of this chapter when David erects this altar. It says in verse 18, God came to David and said to him, go and raise an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. So David went up at God's word as the Lord commanded. And when Aruna looked down, he saw the king and his servants coming toward him. (coughs) And David gets into this bartering with Aruna. And Aruna says, well, just take it and take the cattle and and sacrifice what you need. And David says, no, I need to to purchase because sacrificing should cost something. And Aruna says, fine. And and David sacrifices and the wrath of God is assuaged and it's, it's stayed. And so no further people die at that point and from that point forward. But this is interesting to us, and it should be interesting to us. And maybe it takes a little bit of a, a closer examination because the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. In fact, if you guys listened to Tima today, this was brought up on, on Tima in one of the questions with Pastor Mike uh, to every man and answer, the, the radio show that he co-hosts a lot. But does anybody know the significance of the threshing floor of Aruna? Later on, something else is erected over the threshing floor of Aruna. The temple, right? The temple the dwelling place of God, the Holy of Holies, the place where atonement would take place on the day of atonement. And then think about how significant that this is, that in order to bring an end to God's judgment against his people, God has David go to this significant location in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to satisfy his wrath. And think about how that foreshadows another sacrifice that would take place in Jerusalem, not at the Temple Mount because it was outside the Temple Mount. But yet it was a sacrifice that would satisfy God's wrath against his people. Our third and final point tonight is this. Rejoice in the extent of Christ's death. Rejoice in the extent of God, of Christ's death. There's comfort in his grace. There's a fear that we need to have 
at his justice, the justice of God, but there's a rejoicing that we should be experiencing when we consider the extent of Christ's death because that's the answer to the fear that we experience in point number two there, at his justice. Imagine the relief from Israel when finally this pestilence stopped. When nobody else was getting sick, nobody else was dying anymore. The relief that they must have felt when the wrath of God was finally satisfied. Relief that would have eventually turned into joy. If you're a parent and your kid has ever been sick, and it's been a situation where it's not just a common cold, but something that's out of your control, and then you're, they've recovered from that, you, you know what this is like. My middle son, who's three years old, his name is Luke, he, in the middle of the night for the longest time, would, would wake up, and we thought for, forever that it was croup, because it had that, that coughing sound, and it was strident breathing. And I would go in, and I would get him out of his bed, and his chest would be caving in because he would be laboring to get a breath in. And that's terrifying as a parent. And he's panicking because he, he doesn't understand or know what's going on. And, and you don't know what to do. And, and we would go to the emergency room the first few times. And then we finally figured out how to, to treat it. And now we're still trying to figure out what's going on. But when you go in and you see your child is, is unable to breathe in the middle of the night, it's, it's paralyzing with fear. But then once you know what to do and you know how to treat it and then all of a sudden you see him return to normal, there's a relief that sweeps over you, that washes over you. And there's almost this giddiness, this joy that comes over you because you're so thankful and glad that he's okay. That there's nothing wrong anymore. It's that, that anxiety that grips your heart when it, you're brought into the, the peace, the resolution of whatever it is that's, that's been gripping you for so long. There's a, a, a joy that accompanies that. And that's what should be ours when we consider the cross. Just a moment ago, I, I spoke of the sanctifying effect the cross should have on us. That we should remember the cross when we're tempted to sin so that it drives us not to sin. But the cross should also could cause us to have this feeling of relief and joy. That we're forgiven. That we're declared righteous. That God's justice has been satisfied through the atoning death of Christ on the cross for us. Think about Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. Hebrews 10, 11 says this, Every priest stands daily at his service. Where? At the temple, on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusites. Every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But... But when Christ had offered for all time, for all time, a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down. He's not standing there ready to offer repeatedly. He sat down because it's finished. He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Rejoice at the extent of Christ's death. Once for all, that if you have repented from your sins and put your trust in Jesus Christ, that's why you can never outsin Christ. You can never outsin the cross because all of our sins, 2 Corinthians 5.21, were laid on Jesus at the cross and we, in exchange, became the righteousness of God. Rejoice in that. Feel the relief in that. 
That's why when you sin back to point number one, you don't have to clean yourself up before you go back to God because Jesus has said you're clean in me. You've got my blood cleansing you. You don't need to add your filthy rags to my blood. Please don't insult me that way. Flee to the cross when you've sinned. And rejoice, feel the relief when you confess that God has forgiven you and that there's, there's an extent of forgiveness that will never be exhausted for you there. Always bearing in mind the justice that paid the penalty for that. So that your response is not to then run from the cross and go back into sin, but your response is, is from that point forward to, to, to run and say, okay, I want to pursue righteousness now. Feel that relief and that joy that the biggest problem that you have ever faced has been dealt with at the cross. Lessons learned from David. Many of them we could walk away with. We'll, we'll cover some more next week just from a 30,000 foot view. But you know how we react to our sin, I think that's a big focus of 2 Samuel. We saw it not modeled very well for us in chapter 11, 12. And then we saw the fallout in 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. But here in chapter 24, as this book lands the plane, so to speak, we see David respond rightly to his sin. And yes, we see the, the justice of God and the punishment, but we also see the mercy of God through accepting the sacrifice as a foreshadow of what was gonna be coming through the cross. So gentlemen, when we... When our hearts strike us, we have a gracious God who's provided the cross so that he can forever be the just God and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for that reality, grateful for that truth, emblazon it on our minds and our hearts, God. Sear it on our minds that, that we are forgiven in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. God, I would also ask that you would keep forefront in our thoughts the cost of our salvation, that it did not come freely or cheaply to your son. Lord, help us to understand as, as much as we can and we confess that our minds will never be able to fully comprehend what it was for you to execute your son on the cross for us. But Lord, give us a greater understanding of it, a greater appreciation for the suffering that he went through so that we can be more grateful for that. Lord, so that we can experience a greater joy that it wasn't us there, that, that we can experience the relief that our sins have been forgiven and that we can live a life of, of obedience to you as a, as a representation of our thanksgiving and our gratitude for forgiving us. Lord, your grace is inexhaustible. Your justice is infinite. And the cross, Lord, is the perfect solution. Thank you, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.